Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 404. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy that you are here to join us today. And I'm also thrilled to introduce our guest, Tom Nardone. Tom is a house flipping coach from MillionaireMailman.com. I am so happy to have you here. I can't wait to dive right in and talk about what you do. But first, could you introduce yourself a bit better and tell the listeners how you got to where you are today? Sure. That whole millionaire mailman concept got started where I worked for 16 years as a mailman in a post office here in South Florida in the Fort Lauderdale area. And I met my wife at the post office and soon after realized that being a mailman wasn't really my highest calling in life. So like a lot of people that get into a kind of a 40-hour-a-week job rut, I had to try to find a way to get ahead. So I started buying up houses on my mail routes and got into real estate investing. And that's kind of how the whole nickname Millionaire Mailman got started for me. It was actually my comrades at the post office I used to work with started that. So you would go out to deliver mail and you would come home with a house. How do you explain that to your wife? Well, (laughs) she was okay with that because really my wife, who kind of enforced the idea that she expected a little more lifestyle than what a mailman's paycheck can afford. So (laughs) I kind of jokingly say that when you work for the post office, this is it. This is the place where dreams come to die. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek because God bless a job when it pays the bills, it provides for, you know, an okay lifestyle, but you're never really going to achieve your dreams with that kind of that 40 hour week job type thing. So we had tried several different multi-level marketing companies to try to get out of the rut. And there's a lot of good companies out there. We just couldn't find the one that worked for us. And then I was lucky that in South Florida here, we kind of back in the eighties when I was getting started, we had a lot of these no money down guys sort of blow through town on a regular basis through Florida. And I was lucky enough to hook up with a couple of them as mentors, and I was lucky that they were real guys. They weren't just like information marketers, and they showed me the business, and when they found out that I was a mailman, they were like, wow, you talk about positive productivity. Look what you do every day. It's like you either walk around or you drive around, and you see houses every day. So you would see foreclosure deals in these neighborhoods before anyone else got the message for that. Huh. I never thought about that. Yeah. It was kind of like my edge, my unfair advantage, if you want to call it that. Yeah. You see the red and yellow envelopes even before the recipient gets them. Exactly. In fact, Kim, if you think about back in the 80s, I mean, what did we not have in the 80s? (laughs) Email. We didn't have email. Didn't really, until the later 80s, we really didn't even have internet. And certainly didn't have cell phones. So the way people communicated, the way the bank communicated with borrowers who couldn't make their payments was they would send out a certified letter to the homeowner who was about to go into foreclosure. So it was my job, and I did this on your tax dollars, by the way, Kim. 
it was my job to literally go up to the front door and knock on the door and talk to the seller and say, hey, I got a letter for you from whatever the mortgage company's name was. And a lot of times they would just look and they would say, oh, my God, I got to get rid of this house. Do you know anybody who wants to buy it? And I'd be standing there like, yeah, me, but I don't want to get in trouble. I'm in my uniform. Let me come back in the evening in my civilian clothes and let's talk about this. So that's how I got started. So you were delivering bad news followed by like just instant glimpse of hope. Yes, because when you think about a house going into foreclosure and somebody stepping into the picture to kind of save the day and help both parties, If it's a mortgage that's going in the foreclosure, well, the seller is about to ruin their credit. It's not quite so bad if they're 30 or 60 or 90 days late on their mortgage, but beyond that, they're going to have a foreclosure on their record. And of course, the bank on the other end of that equation is not receiving the payments. So back in the 80s and early 90s, when I was really getting started and bought a lot of houses, I was like, Superman stepping into the picture and saying, listen, let me just take over your little mortgage coupon book and I'll just take over your mortgage. I'll catch up your late payments for the last couple months. And this way, you know, your credit won't be ruined and the bank will have a performing loan again that's on time with the payments and everybody lives happily ever after. And after the seller would move, I would rent that house out and make it a rental property. So I just want to clarify, though, you just said you would take over their payments. So would you buy it from them? I would actually buy the house from them. So and this may be getting a little more into the technicality of the closing. But I would yes, I would actually get a deed from them. But their mortgage would a lot of times still be on the property. Well, back in the 70s and early 80s, there were a lot of fully assumable mortgages. If you've ever heard the term. I have. Yeah. Well, there was most all mortgages actually created in the 70s and earlier were fully assumable. It was only in the 80s and late 70s that the banks figured, wait a minute, why are we making these assumable? Let's make them pay it off every time they sell so that we get points and get to do a new loan and charge them new charges all the time. So it's kind of bankers that thought that up. Tom, I'm going through a home buying process right now. It's our first home that we've ever bought. It's been a four-year hellish. That's the best I can say without having to put an E on this episode journey. Because as an entrepreneur, it can be a struggle to buy a house. Like They don't even want to see me on the mortgage application because I don't have, quote, real income. Mm -hmm. There's ways that I could go around that. Listeners, someday after it's all wrapped up, I will have an episode about that. However... Wouldn't assumable, I mean, would it stay on their credit? And that's the last question, then we'll jump back into you. But I'm just so intrigued. Would that stay on their credit history? Or would it actually go on yours then? No, it would stay on theirs because it would be their social security number and their credit that's kind of on the line for it. But there's sort of two avenues there. There's number one, you can take over somebody's existing payments. And there's pros and cons to that, which is a subject for another day. But in general, yes, you can do that. But secondly, if you will find a seller who maybe owns a home outright that you want to live in that has no mortgage, 
and they carry back seller financing for you and you just make that person the bank in essence and pay them monthly payments, that's perfectly legal. And that would also be another form of seller financing where you would not have to go and jump through all the hoops that a bank would normally make you jump through to qualify for that loan. Actually, that's how we started buying our house. I know some people call it rent to own. Others call it a land contract. I mean, and I'm sure that's still different even from seller financing. But we did what they call here in Ohio a land contract for four years where the money that we were paying every month, basically our rent to own was going towards the final sale price. And it allowed us the time to get our credit reestablished. Because listeners, if this is your first episode, I had a previous business where I did everything wrong. I had an e-commerce shop, I maxed out my credit cards to buy all the inventory I could get my hands on. Don't do that. I wound up with $100,000 in debt and I couldn't pay my bills and my credit score took a, a nosedive. Yeah, I don't even want to know how low it could go. You know, this isn't the limbo. <laughs> but yeah, it's not fun. And I live in a small town in Ohio, outside of date. And it saddened me sometimes. The market's really hot here. And I, I'm sure that doesn't make what you do now much easier. And I'd love to dive into that in just a second. But the person that we've been buying from saw how hot it was and was just like, well, if you don't get the mortgage, then I'm going to have to evict you because now we're outside the terms of this contract. So I started looking because I didn't know what was going to happen. And even the least expensive houses, you know, 60, 70,000 were up for foreclosure. And it just saddens me to know that even a payment that small, because it's probably about 300, 400, 500 a month. Yeah. The people are just struggling like that and lose their house that I know they've put blood, sweat, and tears into. Yeah. And right now, I mean, we're in prosperous times, mm -hmm. real estate-wise right now. I mean, think about the blood that was on the streets seven or eight years ago in the housing crisis. Oh, my goodness. So many. I mean, I remember hearing on the news about people bulldozing houses by the hundreds in Ohio. But uh, right now, the market's doing pretty good in most areas. Yeah. So it's good for you on the sell side. How is it for you on the buy side? Good question. And on the buy side, it's kind of weeded out the guys who are experienced because there was a lot of people that were paying too much for houses and they were actually buying in at market level. And everybody pretty much knows that when you buy something at a really discounted price, you, you kind of make your profit in something when you buy it. So if you don't do that up front, then nothing else is really going to fall into place. You could wind up putting way too much into repairs and wind up just breaking even at the end when you sell the property. So in this hot seller's market you just mentioned, it's important to know where to go to really find the deals and really be a good marketer. And when you do spend those marketing dollars, make sure you're spending them in the absolute right marketing channel to have those deals come into you. So I guess to answer your question, the whole key to this is just buying below the market. The back end and the sale of it in a hot market like now just kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. So you were delivering mail. You started going back and talking to people who were about to lose their house when you were in your civilian clothes. What happened next? Well, what happened next was 
we would just kind of sit around their kitchen table in the evening and I would just kind of find out what the problem was. And, you know, I, I always tell my students, by the way, Kim, I have coaching students pretty much in every state. I've coached over 600 students getting started in house flipping over the last five years. So what I've come to realize, and this is what I tell all my students getting started is, it's not at all about the house itself. In fact, I tell them to look for problems, not properties. So when I would meet with a seller, I would really not focus on the house at all. I'd focus on what's the situation here. I I would never say, what's your problem? You don't want to do that. It's not the right way to negotiate. But I would say, what's the situation? I'd listen to them and see if I could come up with an answer to their situation. Like, why can't they make their house payment? Why do they have to move so quickly? Why do they have to sell? And then once you find the answer to that question, your ability to buy that house way below the market is just on the other side of helping them because you found out what a good answer is to that question. Does that make sense? Oh, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. So how did you transition from delivering mail into doing this full time? Great question. What I did was I actually bought my first investment property when I was 25 years old. I'm 58 now, so I've been at this for a while. But how that transitioned out was I wasn't the jet set entrepreneur. I was very slow, slow mailman here. But I did set a simple goal. And my simple goal, Kim, was to buy like three houses a year. And I did that for a 10-year period. And by the time I reached age 35, I had about three dozen houses that I was renting out all on my mail routes. And it was a bit stressful, I will admit that, because I was doing all the management and doing everything myself. And I woke up one day stressed out. My wife said, you got to quit that stupid job. You can't go to work today. You got a business to run. So I said, yes, dear, you're right, as usual. So I quit the post office at age 35. But I had three dozen properties I was renting out, but that was kind of my long-term game. And I like to say I kind of started out real estate investing a little backwards because everything I bought, I held on to because I was thinking, well, I don't need to buy groceries this week because mother government, the post office was automatically depositing a check every Friday into my bank account. So I didn't worry about how I was going to eat that week. I was just focusing on how can I quit this job? I want my freedom. I want to be able to take my life back. So those three dozen houses, once I quit my job, I figured I got enough for retirement if I just keep those and keep renting them out. One day, eventually, the mortgages will get paid off. But once I had my daytimes available, I started doing fix and flips for cash flow. And today, I've probably done, gosh, I would say about 250 fix and flips. And we just wrapped up a house yesterday. The kitchen was installed a couple of days ago. It's a fix and flip, just an hour and a half from my house. And it's going on the market as soon as the photographer gets done on Thursday this week. So I've kind of slowed down my pace a little bit because I do more teaching others how to do what I've learned to do. Mm-hmm. And we do like one fix and flip now about every three months. Huh. Um, channels like... HGTV, and I can't think of others, they've sort of glamorized that industry. They absolutely have, yes. to be authentic, what do you normally look, I mean, I know it varies on the house, but 
some of these people, and I see a whole ton of them in California where they're spending like 750 to a million, if not more on a house. And then they're making like a hundred thousand to millions off the house when they sell it. Mostly in your area doing this, or do you go nationwide? And what would be a good investment as far as you're concerned or expectation for what you'll make back is what I'm trying to say. Oh, great question. Well, as the market changes, we change with the market. And I will admit it, maybe it seems real estate is especially this way. It seems almost like you're trying to hit a moving target most of the time because back in the crash of 2008, 2009, which gosh, it's already been 10 years, but Florida was like first into that crash. and, And I like to say first out. So as the market dipped, and houses here that were literally selling for 300000 all of a sudden were selling for fifty. And I'm not kidding you, Kim. I'm talking just a couple blocks off of the beach because I live about 20 minutes from the Pompano Beach and Fort Lauderdale Beach. And I don't know if you ever heard of Boca Raton. But yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. that's the area I live in. So There's some steep real estate over there. There is, and yeah. that's the next point I was getting to, is that anything near the beach typically will hold its value, but even it crashed mm. 10 years ago. So the last 10 years were a great climb, but what I've personally found is to get the cheaper prices, when I say cheaper, I mean houses that you could buy under 100000 we have been having to go like an hour or two hours north up into central Florida. And I don't know how many of your viewers are familiar with Florida, but obviously we're a peninsula with lots of beaches and anything near the beaches goes up in value very quickly and is very subject to these market swings. But once you get in the center of the state, and especially when you get north of Orlando, Florida gets really country really fast. And you can find little hick towns up in those areas where you can still buy a really nice house for forty or 50000 in fact, this house that we're wrapping up this week, we paid 46000 for it, and we're actually putting it on the market for one forty nine nine. We put about 20000 into it to kind of give you a, an idea of what the numbers look like. Wow. That just yeah. blows my mind. I was an interior architect in my previous career life. Before, the, at the same time as the e-commerce shop, I was designing schools. I did high-end real estate in Chicago. I did high-end corporate in New York and Greenwich, Connecticut. So that has been a dream of mine. But if you look at my own house, you will see no sign of interior design besides markers on walls from children. But (laughs) I have a child in the office who's laughing right now to hear that. But it's the truth. But that was actually a concern of mine. You know, looking around our small town, I mean, I'm in Hick, Ohio. Okay, there is actually a town in Ohio called Hicksville where I would be concerned about putting 20000 into a 40000 house and having it still be 50000 right, when it sells. But I guess once you go through, a, listeners, I'm not an affiliate of Tom's, but I guess that's why it goes, you have to go through the proper training and know what you're looking for and know what your expectations are and what you can expect when you flip it. It's the same in any part of your business. You have to know what's the ROI going to be. And I know you can't always predict. We can put out hundreds of thousands of dollars in Facebook ads and make zero. So we just have to know what we're doing. 
Exactly that. And we've tested Facebook. I know what that's all about. <laughs> there was a house when we were going through our little scare of were we staying here? Were we going to move? It was built in 1920. It was a two family and it was beautiful. Hardwood floors, wood moldings all over. Just amazing. Almost 3,000 square feet. And they had it on the market for, I believe, 97,000. The problem was it was about a block from a train track. It had the old tube electrical. I forget what the actual name is. Knob and tube. Knob and tube. Yep. There was a unfinished attic, which had obviously some openings to the outside because there were gifts left behind by animals. And I pushed on one of the electrical switches and all of a sudden we heard, my husband's like, Kim, stop, stop, stop. (laughs) Before the house burns down. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I had gone to the house thinking this would be so amazing. You know, we could turn it from a two family back into a one family. And then we walked through it and we were just thinking, oh my gosh. I mean, we felt like putting 25,000 into it as the, you know, initial payment would have been too high. Plus, as a podcaster, I can't be one block away from a train track that just... Never thought about that. (laughs) Yeah, that just wouldn't work. I mean, yes, I could put in a studio, but that would be an extra expense. Unless you had a railroad podcast, that might be kind of cool. That would be sort of cool. I didn't even think about that, but I don't. If you saw something like that, though, with knob and tube, would you run or would you be intrigued to look further? I'm just curious. Well, I could get a whole entire house wired for probably about seven or $8,000, depending on the square footage, because mm-hmm. we've done it before. We've never specifically pulled out knob and tube, but the last knob and tube house I looked at, we were more concerned about the lead-based paint that was peeling everywhere than we were about changing over the electric. So... When you get into houses that are these old houses, knob and tube was definitely from the lead-based paint era. You have to consider all the factors because back then they used a lot of cast iron piping and gosh, we bought a historical house several years back, but we actually just finished it like seven or eight months ago. And what we thought was great piping was bad piping and it cost me another $12,000 to have the whole house repiped because we were trying to do it the right way and getting all the proper permits from the city. But when they came out to look at the electric that we were trying to convert over, they saw the plumbing and they said, oh, you got to change that too. You just can't leave that. So you get little surprises like that and knowing what to look for and picking that house, like you saw the house you just mentioned, you know, you kind of walk through and you realize, oh my goodness, this is going to need way more money perhaps than what you initially thought. You have to be really good about estimating your repairs But there's more than one way to skin a cat in real estate investing. A lot of people today are leaving those repairs to the guy who wants to do all the fixing and flipping, and they just wholesale the house out. They'll get it under contract with the seller, and then they'll just make a quick fee on it by assigning that contract to another buyer and let them do all the work. And they make their profit, and they're out of the deal without any of those big fix-up concerns. Hmm. I never really thought about that. In this house, it would have been just a, a pain for us because we would have had to move into it with the five kids and be doing that work. And yes, the lead paint was definitely a concern. One of our daughters had a lead test come back high. So if we're going to be moving there, living there, 
during this reconstruction, let's just be real, it's going to take 10, 20 times longer because we got a shift from one room to the next. Yeah, but everything worked out and we're staying in our house. Going through getting a mortgage for one house has been difficult enough. At some point, do you stop having to get mortgages and just pay for them with cash if you're doing it right? Or do you still have to deal with banks on every single house that you purchase? That's a great question. And the majority of that answer is we use private lenders to fund most of our deals. If it's a really small house, like maybe under 50000 and we don't have that cash laid out to repair other houses that we're working on, then we may buy it for cash. But for the most part of it, we have private investors and a private investor for anybody you know, listening to your show today, Ken, that could just be somebody with a self-directed IRA. Those are great people to fund your real estate transactions. So all the hoops you earlier mentioned about you know, qualifying with the bank and all the stringent rules they have, which just go beyond ridiculous in most cases, in these small cash deals and fixer-uppers, for the most part of it, I'm buying a house that a bank will not put a mortgage on because you know a lot of times it needs a roof. It might have a bad termite problem. And quite honestly, that's where we get our big discount is we're buying houses that require cash. Now, it doesn't have to be my cash. I mean, like I said, it could be somebody else's Roth IRA or 401k that funds that. And you can pay them 8%, which is a solid return secured by a first mortgage loan that you place on that property. And it's a win-win situation for everybody all around. So I'm just going to pretend you said 10%, okay, for sake of even numbers. Sure. And a brain that doesn't have a calculator next to it right now. But let's just say this 40000 house that you just bought. So you're saying that if you had an investor, you would pay them 44 back? Well, if we have the property, if we had it for a full year, which we don't, usually we're in and out of them in 90 days. The interest is very nominal. In fact, that particular house, we don't have mortgage payments on because we did just fund that ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we don't have payments to make. Otherwise, I'd probably know the number right on the top of my head. But without a calculator in front of me right now, whatever that number would be, let's say you borrow $100,000 for a full year and you pay somebody 10%. Well, at the end of the year, they're going to get $10,000 back because that's 10% of 100000 So wow. if you divide that... 10,000 by 12, I think that comes to like $833 a month or something. So, oh, here we are doing quick math division now. So half of that would be half of 833. So a $50,000 house would cost you about $410 a month to carry. Wow. That's just doing quick head yeah. math. That's yeah. amazing. Listeners, you know, I don't usually get this mathy. Is there a better word than that, Tom? <laughs> uh, arithmetically. I know. <laughs> Listeners, tell me what word we should be using here. But I'm just so intrigued. I've been watching a lot of people posting on Facebook about their investments into cyber currency. And then before that, stocks. And there always seems to be something that people are investing in. But stock and cyber currency have always concerned me because I'm so unknowledgeable. I just don't feel educated in that. And I don't really want to take a lot of time in something I'm not passionate about, 
like that. But the whole idea of flipping houses has always just been so intriguing to me. How do you take care of yourself in the midst of a flip to make sure you don't get burnt out? Well, what I try to do is just the overseeing somewhat like a project manager would and try not to actually bang the nails myself. Like yesterday, all in one day, we had a lawn service show up. We had a tile steam cleaning service show up and we had a painter show up, did all the detail painting. I was just there on the job site just to make sure that the guys did a good job and they were all in the wrap-up stage. So I, I was there to write them a check. And you can have a project manager to do that, but I just kind of like to get my own eyes on it from time to time. So how do you take care of yourself? You, you just want to make sure that you're running the business and you're not actually doing the business. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So you're working on the business and not in the business. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly that. Because, you know, when it comes down to a lot of that work, it can be hired done for mm-hmm. 10 or $12 an hour is not a lot to offer to pay someone. Your time is worth much more than that in just running the business. Oh, yeah. And I've been talking about that quite a bit on the podcast lately because I've realized that there's so many activities that I do inside my own business that I should be delegating out. And it would mm-hmm. be 10, 15, 20. I mean, it might go up to 40 depending on what they're doing. But when I can be out there doing the higher level tasks or even marketing and getting on the line with prospective clients, and that's what I should be doing. I mean, you should be out there looking for your next house or enjoying time with your family and because that's all necessary. Yeah, it is. When's the last time that you picked up a sledgehammer and took that first swing at a wall? <laughs> the last time? Uh, let me see. Well, the last time I watched it done by the guy I hired was about four weeks ago. But um, we had a wall we tore down and we pulled out a whole bay window and we just thought kitchen cabinets would be better on that wall. But there was a window there. So we said that window's got to go. So I had one of my workers just tear the whole wall basically down and rebuild it and just drywall over it. Now we had a nice flat surface for kitchen cabinets. But uh, it's been a while since I've swung the hammer. Is it as satisfying as it looks? (laughs) For me, it's more of like a paradigm shift. It's like I come from a hammer and nails background because due to the fact that I was a mailman for all those years, my dad was a police officer when I was a kid growing up. So like a lot of cops and firemen and mailmen, they kind of moonlight on the side doing other jobs. And my dad did that as a carpenter. So ever since I was a kid, he would take me on these jobs where he was actually building houses here. Here, my dad was a cop by day and a builder by night. So I got to see how houses get nailed together. So I always got to hold myself back because my old paradigm is, wow, I just want to pick up that hammer and do it myself, especially when I see somebody not doing it to the same standard that I would do it. And then I say, nope, I can't do that. I can't do it. And I got to really fight it because I got to remember, I have to stay focused on the business and let somebody else bang the nails. And if it's not 100% perfect, that's okay. <laughs> It'll be good enough, and at the end, as long as the house sells, then it's mission accomplished. Do you consider yourself a micromanager, or were you ever? Mm. I would say yes, because I'm fussy about little details. 
we certainly all realize that when we have a business, we have to micromanage certain aspects. Uh, you know, the numbers, the, you know, sitting down with the bookkeeper, I do that on a monthly basis. And mm-hmm. if you want to call, you know, watching those little numbers that go through your bank account every month, if you want to call it micromanaging, I'd say, yeah, I guess I, I do micromanage because it's all about those little details sometimes. Right. So, uh, yeah, I would say I do micromanage certain parts of the business because I just feel like if you're not watching the most important details, that's when something could slip by and either cost you big money or or be an opportunity missed. Oh, my gosh, yes. The first architect that I ever worked with hired an office manager and wasn't taking a look at his own books as regularly as he should be, I should say. And when he looked, found out that the office manager had embezzled something like seven to $800,000. Oof. Yeah. My husband doesn't know how to access the bank accounts just because he just doesn't. <laughs> but nobody goes in there except for me. He has access to it if he wants it. But, you know, Tom, you just gave me unintentionally. I need to make sure my husband even knows where we have bank accounts. <laughs> Going through this home purchasing process, it's all been me processing all the paperwork and getting the bank statements and everything. He knows where his account is. He has got the card. But as far as everything else, yeah. But no, that's something I've been very careful about. First off, are we in the black? Great. And how far? And what's coming out? And yeah, I can imagine, especially with those unexpected surprises like the plumbing. Yeah, You got to make sure that there's always something there to cover. How do you handle unexpected surprises like that? And I don't mean financially, but I mean personally. Do you take a deep breath? Or I'm sure at first you, like with the first couple houses with surprises, it's like, oh, put your own word here. But then over time, does it get easier? Well, I've certainly had to learn not to get like emotionally involved and just realize these are just business decisions that require a competent answer to each and everything that pops up. And fortunately, I'm plugged into a network of fellow real estate investors that have the same experience that I have. So occasionally, as much as I like to think that in 33 years of doing this, I've learned and know just about everything. Every year, there's always something that pops up that's like, wow, I never dreamed that might happen. What do I do in this case? And it's always good to have a mastermind of friends that you can call to get wise counsel and figure out what the next best thing to do is. So the first thing to do is not get emotionally involved in the situation and just really take a deep breath and stand back and look at it from a business perspective and just look at the elements of what's going wrong instead of adding all this other stuff that we tend to add emotionally, if that makes sense. That makes sense and it sounds amazing, but Perhaps it's because I'm a woman, and I don't mean to be generalizing here, but it's very hard for me sometimes not to get emotionally involved. Do you think there is a difference between men and women for their ability to not get emotionally involved? And do you have any tips for how to better that if you have issues? I learned a couple of years ago, I went to some landmark training, and I don't know if you're ever familiar with them. But they have a center here in Fort Lauderdale. And I heard a lot of successful business people taking some of their courses and seminars. And I actually went to them. And it helped me really to be a better decision maker 
and really just looking at, at a situation and maybe find out what's missing from that situation mm-hmm. and then just add that in. So it makes you look at things in a very mechanical way. Now, of course, we're all created, certainly men and women are different creatures, and we definitely handle things, I think, with an inherent emotional system that's already programmed into us. But I think if you can step back from the human side of it and just look at the facts as much as possible, mm. there are certainly successful businesswomen that I've encountered over the years that definitely have the ability to do that even better than myself. So I think, yeah, taking the emotions out of business and just looking for what's either missing or what's wrong with the situation and then adding in what's missing is the way to look at things. Actually, after I asked the question, I just started thinking about one of my uh, clients is certified in emotional intelligence. I was like, I had never done that much research into what it actually is because I, I was on a tight timeline, get the website rebuilt, you know, just get it done. But now I'm wondering if I need to take a deeper look at that. My childhood nickname was Worrywart. And I have shared on the podcast before that it has carried with me into adulthood. So I am definitely going to dig a little bit deeper. Actually, when we're done chatting here, I think I'm just going to pop her over a message and ask more about what it is. Because there are so many times that our brains, our whole focus, our whole task list can get cloudy by that emotional stuff. If we could just do what you were saying, it would just become so much more clear what we really need to do instead of worrying. Exactly. Yeah. Listeners, if you haven't listened to it yet, I want you to go listen to episode 350 with Christina Miller of Garage of Blessings. After we got finished recording that episode on that day, we were actually going through the home struggle here. And she told me to just be still and listen, because I had told her what was going on and how I was worrying. And she's like, just be still and listen and the answer will come and you'll know what you need to do next. So yeah, I'm gonna have to go look into that. Tom, for the person who's listening right now and is really intrigued and wants to get to know more, but wants to know what their first step should be, what would you recommend? What I recommend is a lot of local areas have meetup groups or support groups. And I actually still do attend local gatherings and network with people. And I actually started a a meetup group locally. If any of your listeners happen to be in the Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton area, they're welcome to attend. What I would say is find a coach or a mentor that knows more about the subject that you do and really has achieved what they're talking about, not just you know, selling a bunch of stuff. And I don't say that as a sales pitch for me because obviously I do coach and mentor students. But if you're getting started and you're getting started with literally like next to no money like I started with, then, you know, you could start out just wholesaling contracts and get started in that way. And I actually wrote a book for your listeners, a free ebook. If they'd like to download that, I'd be happy to give you the information on how to do that. Oh, that would be awesome, please. I want to get sure. it actually. Yeah, if they just uh, use the short text code 31996 and just text the word mailman to text code 31996. That's it. And it'll send you a copy of my book, which is How to Get to Your First $10,000 Check in 90 Days. Oh, I love that. So mailman to 31996. Listeners, if you can't do that right now, you can find 
the code in the show notes at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP404. But I am so intrigued. Thank you so much. So I'm just going to say it one more time. Mailman to 31996, right? Just text the word mailman. Okay, fabulous. I'm not trying to overcomplicate, but I think I just did. I love it. I'm so intrigued. I'm going to go text. I actually want to see how your system works, (laughs) but I also (laughs) want the ebook. So I'm going to text as soon as we're done here. Tom, thank you so much for sharing not only your story, but answering all my nosy questions because, well, I've already said it four times. I'll say it a fifth. I'm just so intrigued and I really do want to know more. So thank you. You're welcome, Kim. Is there anywhere else that listeners can go online to learn more and connect with you? Yeah, they can also visit my main website, which is simply millionairemailman.com. Oh, fabulous. And listeners, again, thekimsutton.com forward slash PP404. Tom, do you have a last piece of parting advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Yes. I would say if you feel like you're stuck in a rut, and you're in a kind of a dead-end job, like I was a mailman for 16 years and wondering how I was going to get out of that trapped situation. For me, the positive productivity I found was really just finding a way that I could get to my goals utilizing my daily occupation. And I found out a way that being stuck in that job, turning it into a positive situation of finding foreclosures that I could buy and sell and fix up and eventually escape that job. I would say to your listeners, if you can find some way to utilize your thing that you do every day right now to get to your end goal, that's the key. If you could do that, try to find a way that you can weave the two together and use them to work together for where you ultimately want to be. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.